Section 8 of A History of the Four Georges in Four Volumes, Volume 1, by Justin McCarthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Oxford's Fall, Bolingbroke's Flight, Part 2. The government soon after issued a proclamation dissolving the existing parliament and another summoning a new one. The latter called on all the electors of the kingdom, in consequence of the evil designs of men disaffected to the king, to have a particular regard to such as showed a firmness to the Protestant succession when it was in danger. The appeal was clearly unconstitutional, according to our ideas, but it was made probably in answer to James Stuart's manifesto a few weeks before, in which the pretender reasserted his claims to the throne, and declared that he had only waited until the death of the princess our sister, of whose good intentions toward us we could not for some time past well doubt. The general elections showed an overwhelming majority for the Whigs. The not unnatural fluctuations of public opinion at such a time were effectively illustrated by the sudden and complete manner in which the majority was transferred, now to this side, now to that, just at this moment and indeed for long after the whigs had it all their own way only a few years ago their fortunes had seemed to have sunk to zero and now they had mounted again to the zenith the king opened parliament in person the speech was read for him by the lord chancellor for the very good reason that george could not pronounce english that speech declared that the established constitution church and state should be the rule of his government the debate on the address was remarkable. In the House of Lords, the address contained the words, to recover the reputation of this kingdom. Bolingbroke made his last speech in Parliament. He objected to these words, and proposed an amendment, with an eloquence and an energy worthy of his best days, and with a front as seemingly fearless as though his fortunes were at the full. He contended that to talk of recovering the reputation of the kingdom was to cast a stigma on the glory of the late reign. He proposed to substitute the word maintain for the word recover. His amendment was defeated by 66 votes to 33, exactly 2 to 1. In the House of Commons, the address which was moved by Walpole contained words still more significant. The address spoke of the pretender's attempts to stir up your majesty's subjects to rebellion, declared that his hopes were built upon the measures that had been taken for some time past in great britain and added it shall be our business to trace out those measures whereon he placed his hopes and to bring the authors of them to condign punishment these words were the first distinct intimation given by the ministers that they intended to call their predecessors to account stanhope stated their resolve still more explicitly in the course of the debate Bolingbroke sat and heard it announced that he and his late colleagues were to be impeached for high treason. He put on an appearance of serenity and philosophical boldness for a time, but in his heart he had already taken fright. For a few days he went about in public, showing himself ostentatiously, with all the manner of a man who is happy in his unwonted ease, and is only anxious for relaxation and amusement, he professed to be rejoiced by his relief from office, and those of his friends who wished to please him offered him their formal congratulations 
on his promotion to a retirement that placed him above the petty struggles and cares of political life he visited drury lane theatre on march twenty sixth seventeen fifteen went about amongst his friends chatted flirted paid compliments received compliments arranged to attend another performance at the same theatre the following evening that same night he disguised himself as a serving man slipped quietly down to dover escaped from thence to calais and went hurriedly on to paris ready to place himself and his talents and his influence such as it might be at the service of the stuarts there seems good reason to believe that the duke of marlborough by a master-stroke of treachery avenged himself on bolingbroke at this crisis in bolingbroke's fortunes and decided the flight to paris bolingbroke sought out marlborough and appealing to the memories of their old friendship begged for advice and assistance marlborough professed the utmost concern for bolingbroke and gave him to understand that it was agreed upon between the ministers of the crown and the dutch government that bolingbroke was to be brought to the scaffold marlborough pretended to have certain knowledge of this and he told bolingbroke that his only chance was in flight bolingbroke fled and thereby seemed to admit in advance all the accusations of his enemies and to abandon his friends to their mercy one of bolingbroke's biographers appears to consider that on the whole this was well done by marlborough and that it was only a fair retaliation on bolingbroke in any case it is clear that bolingbroke acted in strict consistency with the principles on which he had moulded his public and private life he consulted for himself first of all it may have been necessary for his own safety that he should fly from the threatening storm it is certain that he had bitter and unrelenting enemies these would not have spared him if they could have made out a case against him no one but bolingbroke himself could know to the full how much of a case there was against him but his flight if it saved himself might have been fatal to those who were in league with him for the return of the stuarts if he had stood firm it is probable that his enemies would not have been able to prevail any farther against him than they were able to prevail in his absence against harley whom his flight so seriously compromised nobody needs to be told that the one last hope for conspirators whose plans are being discovered is for all in the plot to stand together or all to fly together bolingbroke does not seem to have given his associates any chance of considering the position and making up their minds a committee of secrecy was struck it was composed of twenty-one members and the hearts of bolingbroke's friends may well have sunk within them as they studied the names upon its roll many of its members were conscientious whigs whigs of conviction eaten up with the zeal of their house like james stanhope himself and spencer cowper and lord coningsby and young lord finch and pulteney now in his period of full devotion to walpole there were whig lawyers like lechmer there were steady obtuse whigs like edward wortley montague husband of the brilliant and beautiful woman whom pope first loved and then hated there was aylaby then treasurer of the navy afterwards chancellor of the exchequer who came to disgrace at the bursting of the south sea bubble and who would at any time have elected to go with the strongest and loved to tread the path 
lighted by his own impressions as to his own interests. Thomas Pitt, grandfather to the great Chatham, the Governor Pitt of Madras, whose diamonds were objects of admiration to Lady Mary Wortley Montague, was a member of the committee, and so was Sir Richard Onslow, afterwards Speaker of the House of Commons, and uncle of the much more celebrated Speaker Onslow. From none of these men could Bolingbroke have much favour to expect. Those who were honest and unselfish would be ill-disposed toward him because of their honesty and unselfishness. Those who were not exactly honest and certainly not unselfish would, by reason of their character, probably be only too anxious to help the winning party to get rid of him. But the names that must have showed most formidable in the eyes of Bolingbroke and his friends were those of Robert Walpole and Richard Hampton. Two years before this time, the persistent enmity of Bolingbroke had sent Walpole to the Tower, branded with the charge of corruption and expelled from the House of Commons. Now things were changed indeed. Walpole is chairman of the committee, and hast thou found me, O mine enemy? St. John had threatened Hampton, who was a lineal descendant of the Hampden of the Civil War, with the Tower, for daring to censure the ministry of the day, and was only deterred from carrying out his threat by prudent counsellors who showed him that Hampton would be only too proud to share Walpole's imprisonment. These were men not likely to forget or to forgive such injuries. At first the Tories seemed scarcely to have believed that the Whigs would push their policy to extremities. The eccentric Jacobite Shippen publicly scoffed at the committee and declared to the House of Commons that its investigations would vanish into smoke. Such confidence was quickly and rudely shattered. June 9th saw a memorable scene. On that day, Robert Walpole, as chairman of the Committee of Secrecy, rose and told the House of Commons that he had to present a report, but that he was commanded by the committee to move in the first instance that a warrant be issued by the Speaker to apprehend several persons who should be named by him, and that meantime no member be permitted to leave the House. Thereupon the lobbies were cleared of all strangers, and the sergeant-at-arms stood at the door in order to prevent any member from going out. Then Walpole named Mr. Matthew Pryor, Mr. Thomas Harley, and other persons, and the Speaker issued his warrant for their arrest. Mr. Pryor was arrested at once, Mr. Harley a few hours afterwards. Pryor was the poet, the friend, and correspondent of Bolingbroke. He had been much engaged in the negotiations for the Treaty of Utrecht, and had at one time actually held the rank of English envoy. He had but lately returned from Paris, had arrived in London just before Bolingbroke's flight. Thomas Harley, cousin of Lord Oxford, had also been concerned in the negotiations in a less formal and more underhand sort of way. When the arrests had been ordered, Walpole informed the House that the Committee of Secrecy had agreed upon their report and had commanded him to submit it to the House of Commons. The report which Walpole himself, as chairman of the committee, had drawn up was a document of great length. It occupied many hours in the reading. But the time could not have seemed tedious to those who listened. The report was an indictment and a state paper combined. It arrayed with the utmost skill all the evidences and arguments, all the facts, and all the passages of correspondence, 
necessary to make out a case against the accused statesman. It carried with it beyond question the complete historical condemnation of Oxford and Bolingbroke in all that related to the Treaty of Utrecht. Never was it more conclusively established for the historian that ministers of state had used the basest means to bring about the basest objects. It was made clear as light that the national interests and the national honor had been sacrificed for partisan and for personal purposes. Objects in themselves criminal for statesmen to aim at had been sought by means which would have been shameful even if employed for justifiable ends. Had Bolingbroke and Oxford been endeavoring to save the state by the arts which they employed to sacrifice it, their conduct would have called for the condemnation of all honest men. But as regards the transactions with James Stuart, there was ample ground shown for suspicion. There was good reason to conjecture or to infer, but there was no positive evidence of intended treason. An historian reading over the report would in all probability come to the conclusion that Oxford and Bolingbroke had been plotting with James Stuart, but he would not see in it satisfactory grounds for an impeachment. No jury would convict on such evidence. No jury probably would even leave the box for the purpose of considering their verdict. In the course of the events that were soon to follow, it was placed beyond any doubt that Bolingbroke and Oxford had all along been trying to arrange for the return of the Stuarts. They were not driven to throw themselves in despair into the Stuart cause by reason of harsh proceedings taken against them by their enemies in England. They had been pipe-laying, to use an expressive American word, for the Stuart restoration during all the closing years of Queen Anne's reign. The reader must decide for himself as to the degree of moral or political guilt involved in such transactions. It has to be remembered that nearly half, some still say more than half, of the population of these countries was in favor of such a restoration, and that Anne herself unquestionably leaned to the same view. What is certain is that Oxford and Bolingbroke were planning for it. But what seems equally clear is that the report of the secret committee did not contain satisfactory evidence on which to sustain a charge of treason. Swift is not a trustworthy witness on these subjects, but he is quite right when he says that the allegations were more proper materials to furnish out a pamphlet than an impeachment. Bolingbroke's friends must have felt deeply grieved at his flight when they heard the statement of the case against him. Even as regards the Treaty of Utrecht, it seems questionable whether the historical conviction assuredly obtained against him by the contents of the report would, in the existing condition of politics and parties, have been followed by any sort of judicial conviction, whether in a court of law or a trial by Parliament. The day after the reading of the report gave Walpole his long-desired revenge, he impeached Bolingbroke of high treason. There was a dead silence in the house when he had finished. Then two of Bolingbroke's friends, Mr. Hungerford and General Ross, mustered up courage to speak a few words for their lost leader. The star of the morning, the Tory Lucifer, had fallen indeed. Lord Coningsby got up and made a clever little set speech. Walpole had impeached the hand, and Lord Coningsby impeached the head. Walpole had impeached the clerk, and Coningsby 
impeached the justice, Walpole had impeached the scholar, and Coningsby impeached the master. This head, this justice, this master, was, of course, the Lord Oxford. As a piece of dramatic declamation, Coningsby's impeachment was telling enough. As an historical presentation of the case against the two men, it was absurd. Through all Anne's later years, Oxford had been nothing, and Bolingbroke everything. On the very eve of the Queen's death, Bolingbroke had secured his triumph over his former friend by driving Oxford out of all office. Had Oxford been first impeached, and the speech of Lord Coningsby been aimed at Bolingbroke, it would have been strikingly appropriate. As it was, it became meaningless rhetoric. Next day, Oxford went to the House of Lords and tried to appear cool and unconcerned. But according to a contemporary account, finding that most members avoided sitting near him and that even the Earl Powlett was shy of exchanging a few words with him, he was dashed out of countenance and retired out of the House. Impeachments were now the order of the day. The loyal Whigs of the Commons were incessantly passing between the Upper House and the Lower with articles of impeachment, and still further articles when the first were not found to be strong enough for the purpose. Stanhope impeached the Duke of Ormond, Aileby impeached Lord Strafford, not of high treason, but of high crimes and misdemeanors. Strafford was accused of being not only the tool of a Frenchified ministry, but the adviser of most pernicious measures. Strafford's part in the negotiations had not been one of any considerable importance. He had been sent as English plenipotentiary to the Congress at Utrecht. Associated with him as second plenipotentiary was Dr. John Robinson, then Bishop of Bristol, and more lately made Bishop of London, the churchman on whom the office of the Privy Seal had been conferred by Harley, to the great anger of the Whigs. It was said that Strafford, in his high and mighty way, had refused flatly to accept a mere poet-like prior for his official colleague. Strafford had in reality little or nothing to do with the making of the treaty. The negotiations were carried on between Bolingbroke and the Marquis de Torcy, French Secretary of State and nephew of the great Colbert. And when these wanted agents, they employed men more clever and less pompous than Strafford. Aileby, in bringing on his motion, drew a curious distinction between Strafford and Strafford's official colleague. The good and pious prelate, he said, had been only a cipher and seemed to have been put at the head of that negotiation only to palliate the iniquity of it under the sacredness of his character. He was glad, therefore, that nothing could be charged upon the bishop and complacently observed that the course taken with regard to Dr. Robinson, who was not to be impeached, ought to convince the world that the church was not in danger. There was some wisdom, as well as wit, in a remark made thereupon by a member of the House in opposing the motion. The bishop, it seems, is to have the benefit of clergy. The motions for the impeachment of Bolingbroke and Oxford were carried without a division. This fact, however, would be little indication as to the result of an impeachment after a long trial, and after the minds of men had cooled down on both sides, when Whigs had grown less passionate in their hate, and Tories had recovered their courage to sustain their friends. Even at the moment the impeachment of the Duke of Ormond was a matter of far greater 
difficulty. Ormond had many friends, even among the most genuine supporters of the Hanoverian succession. He was the idol of the high church party, at all events of the high church mob. Had he acted with anything like a steady resolve, he would in all probability have escaped even impeachment. To some of the most serious charges against him, his refusal, for instance, to attack the French while the secret negotiations for the Treaty of Utrecht were going on, he could fairly have pleaded that he had acted only as a soldier taking positive instructions and carrying them out. His clear and obvious policy would have been to take the quiet stand of a man conscious of innocence, and therefore not afraid of the scrutiny of any committee or the judgment of any tribunal. But Ormond hesitated. Ormond was always hesitating. Many of his influential supporters urged him to seek an audience of the king at once, and to profess to George his unfailing and incorruptible loyalty. Had he taken such a course, it is not at all unlikely that the king might have caused the measures against him to be abandoned. Ormond's friends, indeed, were full of hope that they could, in any case, induce the ministry not to persevere in the proceedings against him. On the other hand, he was urged to join in an insurrection in the west of England, toward which, beyond doubt, he had already himself taken some steps. The less cautious of his friends assured him that his appearance in the west would be welcomed with open arms, and would bring a vast number of adherents round him, and that a powerful blow could be struck at once against the Hanoverian succession. Ormond, however, took neither the one course nor the other. To do him justice, he was far too honorable for the utter perfidy of the first course, and it is doing him no injustice to say that he was too feeble for the daring enterprise of the second. It is believed that Ormond had an interview with Oxford before his flight, and that he urged Oxford to attempt an escape in terms not unlike those with which William the Silent in Goethe's play endeavors to persuade Egmont not to remain in the power of Philip II. Then Ormond himself fled to France. He lived there for thirty years after. He led a pleasant, easy, harmless life, and was completely forgotten in England for years and years before his death. More than twenty years after his flight, he is described by vivacious Mary Wortley Montague as one who seems to have forgotten every part of his past life and to be of no party. He was a weak man, with only a very faint outline of a character, but he was more honorable and consistent than was common with the men of his time. When he had once taken up a cause or a principle, he held to it. He was the very opposite of Bolingbroke. Bolingbroke was genius and force without principle. Ormond had principle without genius or force. Two, then, of the great accused peers were beyond the reach of the House of Lords. Oxford alone remained. On July ninth, 1715, articles of impeachment were brought up against him. The impeachment does not seem to have been very substantial in its character. The great majority of its articles referred to the conduct of Oxford with regard to the Treaty of Utrecht. One article accused him of having abused his influence over Her Majesty by prevailing upon her to exercise, in the most unprecedented and dangerous manner, her prerogative for the creation of twelve peers in 1711. A notion that Oxford be committed to the Tower was made, 
and in this motion he spoke a few words which were at once ingenious and dignified he asserted his innocence of any treasonable practice or thought and declared that what he had done was done in obedience to the positive orders of the queen he asked the house what might not happen if ministers of state acting on the immediate commands of their sovereign were afterwards to be made accountable for their proceedings then in a few words he commended his cause to the justice of his brother peers and took leave of the house of lords as he put it perhaps for ever such an impeachment would have been impossible in more recent days if oxford had been accused of treasonable dealings with the stuarts and if evidence could have been brought home to him there indeed might have been a reasonable ground for impeachment but there was no sufficient evidence for any such purpose and to impeach a statesman simply because he had taken a political course which was afterwards disapproved by the nation and which was discredited by results was simply to say that any failure in the policy of a minister of the crown might make him liable to impeachment when his enemies came into power the peace of utrecht bad as it was had been condoned or rather approved of by two successive parliaments shrewsbury who was now in high favour had been actively concerned in its promotion it was a question of compromise altogether on which politicians were entitled to form the strongest opinion no doubt the enemies of the tory party had ample ground for condemning and denouncing the peace but the part which a statesman had taken in bringing about the peace could not according to our modern ideas form any just ground of ministerial impeachment much more reasonably might the statesmen of a later day have been impeached who by their blundering and their obstinacy brought about the armed resistance and the final independence of the north american colonies it is curious in our eyes to find oxford defending his conduct on the ground that he had simply obeyed the positive orders of his sovereign the minister would run more risk of impeachment in our days who declared that he had acted in some great public crisis simply in obedience to his sovereign's orders than if he were to stand accountable for the greatest errors the grossest blunders committed on the judgment and on the responsibility of himself and his colleagues oxford was committed to the tower whither he went escorted by an immense popular procession of his admirers who cheered vociferously for him and for high church together he may now be said to drop out of our history altogether he was destined to linger in long confinement almost like one forgotten by friends and enemies we shall have to tell afterwards how he petitioned for a trial and was brought to trial and in what fashion he came to be acquitted by his peers the remainder of his life he passed in happy quietude among his books and curious manuscripts the books and manuscripts which formed the original stock of the harleian library afterwards completed by his son harley lived until seventeen twenty four and he was not an old man even then only sixty-three it is not necessary that in this work we should concern ourselves much more about him despite all the praises of his friends some of them men of the highest intellectual gifts like swift and pope there does not seem to have been any great quality intellectual or moral in harley he had a narrow and feeble mind he was incapable of taking a large view of anything he was selfish and deceitful although it has to be said that sometimes that which men call deceit in him 
was but a lack of the capacity to look straight before him and make up his mind he often led astray those who acted with him merely because his own confusion of intellect and want of defined purpose were leading himself astray perhaps the most dignified passage in his life was that which showed him calmly awaiting the worst in london when men like bolingbroke and ormond had chosen to seek safety in flight yet even the course which he took in this instance seems to have been rather the result of indecision than of independent self-sufficing courage and resolve he does not appear to have been able to decide upon anything until the time had passed when movement of any kind would have availed and so he remained where he was many a man has gained credit for courage and has seemed to surround himself with dignity because at a moment of alarm when others did this or that he was unable to quite make up his mind as to what he ought to do and so did nothing and let the world go by on september seventeenth norroy king at arms came solemnly down to the house of lords and raised the names of ormond and bolingbroke from the roll of peers bolingbroke had some consolation of a sham kind he had wished and schemed to be earl of bolingbroke before his fall and now his new king james of st germain had given him the patent of enhanced nobility if he ceased to be a viscount in the eyes of english peers and of english heralds he was still an earl in the pretender's court bolingbroke had too keen a sense of humour not to be painfully aware of the irony of the situation nor was he likely to find much satisfaction in the peerage which the government had just conferred upon his father sir henry st john by creating him baron of battersea and viscount st john sir henry st john was an idle careless roue a haunter of st james's coffee-houses living in the manner and in the memories of the restoration listlessly indifferent to all parties leaning perhaps a little to the whigs he had no manner of sympathy with his son or appreciation of his genius when the son was made a peer the father only said well harry i thought thee would be hanged but now i see thee will be beheaded the father himself was once very near being hanged in his wild youth he had killed a man in a quarrel and was tried for murder and condemned to death and then pardoned by the king charles the second in consideration it is said of a liberal money payment to the merry monarch and his yet more merry mistresses. End of chapter six, part two. Recording by Pamela Nagami.